Chapters 65 and 66 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter 65. The Hegira, or Flight. I say, doctor, cried I, a few days after my adventure with the goblin, as, in the presence of our host, we were one morning lounging upon the matting in his dwelling, smoking our reed-pipes. Tamai's a thriving place. Why not settle down? Faith, said he, not a bad idea, Paul. But do you fancy they'll let us stay, though? Why, certainly, they would be overjoyed to have a couple of carhowries for townsmen. Gad, you're right, my pleasant fellow. Ha, ha, I'll put up a banana leaf as physician from London, deliver lectures on Polynesian antiquities, teach English in five lessons of one hour each, establish power looms for the manufacture of tapa, lay out a public park in the middle of the village, and found a festival in honor of Captain Cook. But surely not without stopping to take breath, observed I. The doctor's projects, to be sure, were of a rather visionary cast, but we seriously thought, nevertheless, of prolonging our stay in the valley for an indefinite period, and, with this understanding, we were turning over various plans for spending our time pleasantly, when several women came running into the house and hurriedly besought us to hurry, hurry, make our escape, crying out something about the mickenaries. Thinking that we were about to be taken up under the act for the suppression of vagrancy, we flew out of the house, sprang into a canoe before the door, and paddled with might and main over to the other side of the lake. Approaching Rartu's dwelling was a great crowd, among which we perceived several natives, who, from their partly European dress, we were certain did not reside in Tamai. Plunging into the groves, we thanked our stars that we had thus narrowly escaped being apprehended as runaway seamen, and marched off to the beach. This, at least, was what we thought we had escaped. Having fled the village, we could not think of prowling about its vicinity and then returning. In doing so, we might be risking our liberty again. We therefore determined upon journeying back to Martair, and setting our faces thitherward, we reached the planter's house about nightfall. They gave us a cordial reception and a hearty supper, and we sat up talking until a late hour. We now prepared to go round to Talu, a place from which we were not far off when at Tamai, but wishing to see as much of the island as we could, we preferred returning to Martair and then going round by way of the beach. Talu, the only frequented harbour of Aimeo, lies on the western side of the island, almost directly over against Martair. Upon one shore of the bay stands the village of Partuwai, a missionary station. In its vicinity is an extensive sugar plantation, the best of the South Seas, perhaps, worked by a person from Sydney. The patrimonial property of the husband of Pomery, and every way a delightful retreat, Partuwai was one of the occasional residences of the court, but at the time I write of, it was permanently fixed there, the queen having fled thither from Tahiti. Partuwai, they told us, was by no means the place Papati was. Ships seldom touched, and very few foreigners were living ashore. A solitary whaler, however, was reported to be lying in the harbor, wooding and watering, and said to be in want of men. All things considered, 
I could not help looking upon Talu as offering a splendid opening for us adventurers, to say nothing of the facilities presented for going to sea in the whaler, or hiring ourselves out as day laborers in the sugar plantation, there were hopes to be entertained of being promoted to some office of high trust and emolument about the person of Her Majesty the Queen. Nor was this expectation altogether quixotic. In the train of many Polynesian princes, roving whites were frequently found, gentlemen pensioners of state, basking in the tropical sunshine of the court, and leading the pleasantest lives in the world. Upon islands little visited by foreigners, the first seaman that settles down is generally domesticated in the family of the head chief or king, where he frequently discharges the functions of various offices, elsewhere filled by as many different individuals. As historiographer, for instance, he gives the natives some account of distant countries. As commissioner of the arts and sciences, he instructs them in the use of the jackknife and the best way of shaping bits of iron hoop into spearheads. And as interpreter to his majesty, he facilitates intercourse with strangers, besides instructing the people generally in the uses of the most common English phrases, civil and profane, but oftener the latter. These men generally marry well, often, like Hardy of Hanamanu, into the blood royal. Sometimes they officiate as personal attendant, or first lord-in-waiting, to the king. At Amboy, one of the Tonga Islands, a vagabond Welshman bends his knee as cup-bearer to his cannibal majesty. He mixes his morning cup of arva, and, with profound genuflections, presents it in a coconut bowl, richly carved. Upon another island of the same group, where it is customary to bestow no small pains in dressing the hair, frizzing it out by a curious process into an enormous pope's head, an old man-of-war's man fills the post of barber to the king. And as his majesty is not very neat, his mop is exceedingly populous, so that, when Jack is not engaged in dressing the head entrusted to his charge, he busies himself in gently titillating it, a sort of skewer being actually worn about the patient's hair for that special purpose. Even upon the Sandwich Islands, a low rabble of foreigners is kept about the person of Tamahamaha for the purpose of ministering to his ease or enjoyment. Billy Loon, a jolly little negro, tricked out in a soiled blue jacket, studded all over with rusty bell-buttons, and garnished with shabby gold lace, is the royal drummer and pounder of the tambourine. Joe, a wooden-legged Portuguese, who lost his leg by a whale, is violinist, and Mordecai, as he is called, a villainous-looking scamp, going about with his cups and balls in a side pocket, diverts the court with his jugglery. These idle rascals receive no fixed salary, being altogether dependent upon the casual bounty of their master. Now and then they run up a score at the dance-houses in Honolulu, where the illustrious Tamahamaha Third afterwards calls and settles the bill. A few years since, an auctioneer to his majesty came near being added to the retinue of state. It seems that he was the first man who had practiced his vocation on the Sandwich Islands, and delighted with the sport of bidding upon his wares, the king was one of his best customers. At last, he besought the man to leave his profession, and he should be handsomely provided for at court. But the auctioneer refused, and so the ivory hammer lost the chance of being borne before him on a velvet cushion, 
when the next king went to be crowned. But it was not as strolling players, nor as footmen out of employ, that the doctor and myself looked forward to our approaching introduction to the court of the Queen of Tahiti. On the contrary, as before hinted, we expected to swell the appropriations of breadfruit and coconuts on the civil list by filling some honorable office in her gift. We were told that to resist the usurpation of the French, the Queen was rallying about her person all the foreigners she could. Her partiality for the English and Americans was well known, and this was an additional ground for our anticipating a favorable reception. Zeke had informed us, moreover, that by the Queen's counsellors at Partuwai, a war of aggression against the invaders at Papati had been seriously thought of. Should this prove true, a surgeon's commission for the doctor and a lieutenancy for myself were certainly counted upon in our sanguine expectations. Such, then, were our views and such our hopes in projecting a trip to Talu. But in our most lofty aspirations, we by no means lost sight of any minor matters which might help us to promotion. The doctor had informed me that he excelled in playing the fiddle. I now suggested that as soon as we arrived at Partuwai, we should endeavor to borrow a violin for him, or if this could not be done, that he should manufacture some kind of a substitute, and thus equipped, apply for an audience of the queen. Her well-known passion for music would at once secure his admittance, and so, under the most favorable auspices, bring about our introduction to her notice. And who knows, said my waggish comrade, throwing his head back and performing an imaginary air by briskly drawing one arm across the other, who knows that I may not fiddle myself into Her Majesty's good graces so as to become a sort of Rizzio to the Tahitian princess? Chapter 64. How We Were to Get to Talu the inglorious circumstances of our somewhat premature departure from Tamai filled the sagacious doctor and myself with sundry misgivings for the future. Under Zeke's protection, we were secure from all impertinent interference in our concerns on the part of the natives. But as friendless wanderers over the island, we ran the risk of being apprehended as runaways, and as such, sent back to Tahiti. The truth is that the rewards constantly offered for the apprehension of deserters from ships induce some of the natives to eye all strangers suspiciously. A passport was therefore desirable, but such a thing had never been heard of in Imeo. At last, Longos suggested that as the Yankee was well known and much respected all over the island, we should endeavor to obtain from him some sort of paper, not only certifying to our having been in his employ, but also to our not being highwaymen, kidnappers, nor yet runaway seamen. Even written in English, a paper like this would answer every purpose, for the unlettered natives, standing in great awe of the document, would not dare to molest us until acquainted with its purport. Then, if it came to the worst, we might repair to the nearest missionary and have the passport explained. Upon informing Zeke of these matters, he seemed highly flattered with the opinion we entertained of his reputation abroad, and he agreed to oblige us. The doctor at once offered to furnish him with a draft of the paper, but he refused, saying he would write it himself. With a rooster's quill, therefore, a bit of soiled paper and a stout heart, he set to work. Evidently, he was not accustomed to composition, 
for his literary throes were so violent that the doctor suggested that some sort of a cesarean operation might be necessary. The precious paper was at last finished, and a great curiosity it was. We were much diverted with his reasons for not dating it. In this here dumbed climate, he observed, a feller can't keep the run of the months nohow, cause there's no seasons, no summer and winter to go by. One's eternally thinkin' it's always July, it's so pesky hot. A passport provided, we cast about for some means of getting to Talu. The island of Imeo is very nearly surrounded by a regular breakwater of coral, extending within a mile or less of the shore. The smooth canal within furnishes the best means of communication with the different settlements, all of which, with the exception of Tamai, are right upon the water. And so indolent are the Imeos that they think nothing of going twenty or thirty miles round the island in a canoe in order to reach a place not a quarter of that distance by land but as hinted before, the fear of the bullocks has something to do with this. The idea of journeying in a canoe struck our fancy quite pleasantly, and we at once set about chartering one if possible, but none could we obtain, for not only did we have nothing to pay for hiring one, but we could not expect to have it loaned, inasmuch as the good-natured owner would, in all probability, have to walk along the beach as we paddled, in order to bring back his property when we had no further use for it. At last it was decided to commence our journey on foot, trusting that we would soon fall in with a canoe going our way, in which we might take passage. The planters said we would find no beaten path. All we had to do was to follow the beach, and however inviting it might look inland, on no account must we stray from it. In short, the longest way round was the nearest way to Talu. At intervals there were little hamlets along the shore, besides lonely fishermen's huts here and there, where we could get plenty to eat without pay, so there was no necessity to lay in any store. Intending to be off before sunrise the next morning, so as to have the benefit of the coolest part of the day, we bade our kind host farewell overnight, and then, repairing to the beach, we launched our floating pallet, and slept away merrily till dawn. End of chapters 65 and 66. Recording by Tricia G.